We're in Philippians chapter 2 tonight. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. On Wednesday night, we're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles by the door. I think it'll really help you to follow along with me as we go through these verses. Tonight, we're going to look at the mindset of joy. The theme of the book of Philippians is joy. Paul's in prison. You would think it would be a time where he would be grumbling, where he'd be complaining, where he'd be looking at all the things that he doesn't like, but instead, he's finding joy in the Lord. He's rejoicing in who God is. It's kind of like chips and salsa. I had some chips and salsa for lunch today. It was delicious. Fresh bag, poured a little bowl, went home for lunch. That is good, good stuff. I was taking joy in all the flavors that were inside of my mouth. I could have looked at the chips and salsa. I could have watched a commercial about chips and salsa. I could have listened to a tall, skinny pastor talk about chips and salsa. But instead, I, I enjoyed the salsa. And a lot of times with the Lord, we hear about the Lord, we talk about the Lord, we listen to messages about the Lord, but it's another thing to enjoy the Lord, isn't it? To enter into his presence, to be in relationship with him, to thank God for who he is and and what he's done. Chapter one is the foundation to joy. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My life is found in Christ, abiding in him, connecting with him, walking in fellowship with him. Now as we get into chapter 2, we're going to be called to a mindset, a way of thinking, and it's to be other-centered instead of to be self-centered. Put Christ first, others second, me last, and that's joy. Jesus, others, and you. And if we can lay hold of this and apply it to our lives, to live in Jesus and to put others in front of ourselves, we're going to find ourselves rejoicing. Not in this fake, false, everything's good, I don't have difficulty, but a deep-seated, centered joy of who the Lord is. This chapter, these verses that we're going to read tonight are life-changing. It's a good challenge for us, no matter where we're at. If we've walked in the Lord for a long time, there's so much here for us. If you're new in the Lord, because this is what I know, is being selfish always has a way of creeping back in, doesn't it? The moment that we thought we dealt with it, there it is. It rears its ugly head. And what's God's answer? To daily choose to walk with him and to serve others. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy. There's going to be four key words as we go through the passage tonight. The first is declaration. Paul begins with a declaration. He's saying, if these four things are true, we know it's a rhetorical question. It could be translated since. Since these things are true, he's declaring a truth about Jesus. And then this is going to lead us, it's going to motivate us to respond by putting others before ourselves. So the first declaration is encouragement in Christ. Is there consolation in Christ? Have you been encouraged by Christ? comforted by Christ? Have you had Christ come alongside of you and help you? Think of an encourager in your life, how they come alongside, they exhort, you can do it, keep going, press on, they give you strength. 
Have you found that to be true in Jesus? Absolutely. And because that is true, and goes on to say, if there's any comfort of love, second declaration, have you been comforted by Jesus' love every day to know that we're loved by him, to know that we're forgiven by him, that he loved us while we were at our, our worst? And then is there any fellowship of the Spirit? This speaks of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that God's Holy Spirit has come inside of us, and we're fellowshipping in the Spirit of God. And then in Christ is there affection and mercy. The old King James refers to this as bowels, and you're kind of reading that in the old King James Version, and you're like, what does bowels have to do with the Bible study? Well, a whole lot. It determines whether you can sit through it or not. Oh. <laughs> However, it speaks of the compassion of Christ. When Christ was moved, he was moved to such a degree that he felt it in his stomach. And so it's referred to the compassion, the affection of Christ, where Christ is moved to such a degree that he feels the pain that we feel, the mercy that's in Christ, God not giving us what, what we deserve. If we found those things to be true about Christ, if we're experiencing those things about Christ, it leads to the exhortation. In the next several verses, we're being challenged by God to live a certain way. Our lives to come in harmony with the message of who Christ is. Fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. So there was four realities, there was four certainties, and now there's four responses. And Paul's saying, you know, look, this is going to be my joy, is going to be complete if I find you guys being like-minded. I think it's the joy of every parent to see your kids get along, isn't it? Just brings a huge smile to your face. Maybe they haven't done all of the things that they should do. Maybe their chores aren't done or their toys aren't picked up. But if they're getting along and they're walking in unity, they're like, man, that blesses my heart more than anything else. And Paul has that fatherly heart. And he's saying, man, it is my joy while I'm here in prison to see you guys walk in unity, to be like-minded. What does it mean to be like-minded? What are we declaring with that statement? It's to be joined in purpose. You find a lot of times people in the business world, if they get moved by a mission, they're like-minded. If it's a sports venture, they become like-minded. They've committed to, to the cause. So what are we like-minded in? Christ and the mission that he's put us on to make disciples, to declare his name to the world, to our community, to the ends of the world. That, that's our mission. And we're joined inside of that purpose, and it causes us to be like-minded. That's the first response. But then also to have the same love. Do you realize we all have the same love from Christ? Sometimes I think we get so individualistic, we think Christ only loves me. Yes, he does love me, but guess what? He loves all of us. And he loves all of us the same way, to the same degree. He's not a respecter of persons. There was a problem in the church of Philippi. We'll find out in chapter 4 that there's a division between two key women that Paul is encouraging to walk in unity. But it seems to be something that's coming over this whole church, this idea of selfishness, just to consider themselves, to be divided with other believers. And Paul's saying, I want you to be like-minded. You have the same love. Christ loves you the same way as he loves the person next to you. Third response, be of one accord. 
Think of a conductor with an orchestra. Isn't it amazing to see that take place? All of these different instruments, but yet they come together in a perfect unity. They have a different part to play, but they're following the lead of the conductor, and they're in one accord. And it's the same for us as believers. As we're listening to Christ, following Christ, he brings us into this beautiful harmony, and then of one mind. That's, that's the last response, and specifically, it's the mind of Christ. It's the mindset of joy. Continuing with the exhortation, our second key word, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. He's telling us what not to do. What's going to rob our joy? What's going to ruin our unity? Selfish ambition. James chapter 4 answers the question, where do wars and fights come from in your midst? Have you ever wondered that? Why, why are we fighting? What, what's the very core of this fight? And he says, it's selfishness. It's, it's that lust where we have to be right. We have to have the last word. Selfishness will always destroy unity. will destroy harmony. will destroy relationships. So here's this strong challenge from the word of God. Don't let anything be done through selfishness. Don't let anything be done through selfish motivation. This is challenging. Sometimes we can even do the right thing for the wrong motive, right? I really want something, so I'm going to be kind. I really want someone's favor. I want them to do something in, in return for me, so, so I'm going to then be kind to them. But it's got a string attached. It's got a, a selfish motivation included in it. That then leads to conceit or pride or vainglory. So easy for that to enter into our hearts. We can be competitive with other churches, we can be competitive with our own reputation. We can get all mixed up on why we're serving God. It's conceit, it's pride, it's vainglory. Here's the answer to those things. But lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The mind of joy is one of humility, of lowliness. And it's that humility inside of us that says, I can then serve someone else. I can esteem someone better than myself. When I'm only concerned with my own needs, my own considerations, my own wants, it is prideful. It is conceited. I'm not even taking the time to see the needs right in front of me. It's a humble person that's aware of their own sin, their own struggles, aware of who God is and his majesty that causes us to say, I can esteem others better than myself. I can put their needs before my own. This is countercultural. This is counter than our flesh. What does cultural tell us? Make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure that your needs are met. And what is God saying? Esteem other people's needs to be above your own. Very specifically, it tells us how in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not condemned in Scripture to care for your own interests. There is a level of responsibility to make sure that your needs are met. But it isn't to the point where we neglect the needs of others. And in fact, other people's needs, their interests, come before our own. Isn't it amazing how deeply we're innately selfish? If you're wondering about this, if a photo gets taken 
and you happen to be in it, who's the first person that you look at? Today, it's a Facebook post, right? No one ever prints a photo anymore. You look at yourself. Man, my nose hasn't changed. My eyebrows are as thick as they've ever been. You start to analyze yourself, don't we? Think about how much we go through the day just thinking about ourselves. Man, I could really use a cup of coffee. Oh, I'm really tired. That person is going way too slow in front of me. Don't they realize I've got to get somewhere? And there's, I don't know what's worse, someone who's speeding extremely or going detrimentally slow under the speed limit. And you're like, it's 45, you're going 28 miles an hour. You're slowing me down, right? So this is a real transformational way of thinking. How might it look to look at other people's needs instead of our own? Be to start in our immediate circle with our neighbors, with those that we live with, our families. There may be some needs under our own roof, roommates, spouses, kids, those in your apartment complex, and we're so ingrained in selfishness, we don't even stop to consider what kind of day is my spouse having? What kind of day are my kids having? How can I serve them? How can I meet a need that is right in front of them? Our expectation is people would meet our needs. And they'd consider our day, but you flip that and you go, man, how could I help my spouse? Is there some things around the house that I could get involved in? Could I help out with the dishes? Could I help out with the laundry? Could I give them a compliment? Could I take the time to engage them in conversation? Pray together. Share the things of God together. Bearing one another's burdens. It's taking the time to listen, taking the the time to help, realizing what's their interest, what's their need, what's their thing that they're into. And what happens when we get the eye of the soul off the self is it leads to joy. There's nothing that leads to depression, discouragement, more than thinking about ourselves. I can make myself miserable right now. I I could be giving this message and thinking about myself and how miserable I am in the middle of giving this message, right? You can be listening to this message and all you hear is wah, 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 wah. And you're thinking about how miserable you are and how much you hate your life and how much you hate the person sitting next to you, right? I mean, we can just go and go and go and go. And what happens? It's this downward spiral of discouragement. And what does God call us to? Rejoice in the Lord, who Jesus is, the relationship we have, and then go find people that you can care for. Go find needs that you can met. It's amazing when you take the time to pray for someone how much joy you feel. When you help somebody else move. When you mow your neighbor's yard. It's no fun mowing your own yard, but when you mow your neighbor's yard to help them out, when you get done with that, you're like, oh man, that that felt good. There's joy in serving the Lord, doing it unto the Lord. As we gather together as a church family, there's a joy in serving one another, finding out how people are doing around you, serving in an aspect of the church where there, there's need. You, you go home with a whole other perspective of, God, that was awesome. You had, you had a divine appointment for me. This is a life verse. This is a verse to memorize, to underline, to pray through, Every day to wake up and say, God, 
I'm on mission with you. I want to glorify you by serving others, by looking at other people's interest. And verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We have coined this phrase as your worldview. That's the popular buzzword when it comes to your mindset. How do you view the world? Through what lens do you view the world? Well, Christ had a mindset. Christ had a worldview. And thoughts are powerful, aren't they? What you think determines who you are. Your thoughts become your actions. Your actions become your character. Your character defines the course of your life. It's not like we we get here in our character without it starting way, 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 way back with our thoughts. What do I think? What do I think towards God? What do I think towards others? And this is where the battles won and lost is to say, I'm going to think like Christ. I'm going to have the mindset of Christ. So how did he think? First, he thought, I want to be about my father's business. He declared it when he was 12 years old and his parents found him at the temple. He says, why are you guys looking for me? I'm about my father's business. So he woke up every day and saying, Father, I want to fulfill what you have for me. And out of that, he cared for people. Out of that, he loved people. And he invested in others, whoever the Father put in his path that day. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and to not be served. So if Christ walked into a room, what would he be doing? Father, what's, what's going on in the room right now? Who do you want me to speak to? Who do you want me to listen to? Where's the enemy at work? Where's Satan at work? How can I build them up? How can I speak, speak truth to them? And that's the way he thought. Jesus told the disciples at the end of his life, he's saying, my joy I give to you. You can have my joy. Why did Jesus have joy? Because he didn't walk through his life looking at his own shoes. He didn't walk around going, woe is me. I got to die. Man, smile. Things are only going to get worse. It's just leading to the cross. There was a heaviness to the cross. But it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. The joy of being restored with his father. The joy of saving his bride. So we've got to think like Christ. We wake up in the morning. We want to think about ourselves. We want to think about how miserable our life is. We take those thoughts captive. and We're reminded that God is good. Amen. We're reminded he's got a purpose for today, that he's going to put people in our lives to be able to serve. And the joy of the Lord comes into our soul. But it's a a different mindset. We see the mind of Christ and the life of Christ explained in verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is God. It was not a claim that he couldn't hold on to that he was God. To the point where he said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. But verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. No reputation in the Greek means he emptied himself. Not that he stopped being God. All man and all God. But he chose to live a life where he was of no reputation. To serve others many times means we have to empty ourselves. We have to pour ourselves out, and Jesus did that. 
He did it to the degree where he comes in the form of a bondservant, comes in the likeness of men. Think about the life of Christ. Reputation is so important to us, isn't it? But Christ had no reputation. The virgin birth is amazing to us, but it caused Christ to grow up with a life of scandal. Who believed the virgin birth? Nobody. It's a story you wouldn't believe. They were constantly poking and making fun of this claim to the virgin birth. You don't know who who your dad is. He was a refugee. Did you realize that Christ was a refugee? He had to leave Israel, the promised land, to go to Egypt for his life to be saved. Comes back into Israel, is in the Galilee region, not a lot of people, not a lot going on. His dad's a carpenter. His earthly dad, Joseph, was a carpenter. Grows up in this life of simplicity, of no reputation. Starts his earthly ministry, gets ridiculed, mocked. His own family, his half-brothers and sisters, they don't believe in him. They reject him, and it ultimately leads to the cross, a humiliating death. He made himself of no reputation. I'd like to tell you tonight that serving others is going to be glamorous. That when you serve others, people are going to notice that you're going to write a book and it's going to be on the bestsellers list. You're going to start blogging and people are going to read it like crazy. People are going to flock to be around you because you're other centers, but that's not biblical. That's not the promise of living other centers. If that was what God does in your life, praise the Lord. But you know what a real life of service is going to result in? Of no reputation. People aren't going to notice, but God's going to notice, and you're going to have a joyful soul. So no reputation comes in the likeness of men. All God and all man. This is so hard for us to comprehend. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The best way that I can think to describe it is you die, you go to heaven, you get a glorified body. And it is fit, and it is buff, and it is healthy, okay? And the father looks at you and he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. I've got a new job for you. There's this planet out here that nobody knew about, and it's filled with grasshoppers. And I want you to go become a grasshopper. But you're still going to remain my son, my daughter, but you're going to take on the form of a grasshopper. You're going to be all my son, all my daughter, and all grasshopper. I've got some really bad news for you. They're not going to appreciate the fact that you're there. And you're going to have to die for their sins, and they're going to rip your little grasshopper body apart. Then you're going to rise again, and throughout all of eternity, you're going to have a little grasshopper body. And you're going to be the first fruits of the resurrection for all those grasshoppers. And they're going to inherit a glorified grasshopper body like you have. Do you think that would sound fun? It's like, no. What do I do with grasshoppers? I squish them, right? If I can catch them. And that doesn't even come close to what God did for us. Think of the glory with the Father. He's the creator of the universe. He spoke all things into existence, and then he comes in human flesh to die for our sins. That's to the degree that he thought about other people's needs, and we thought doing the dishes was hard. 
We thought taking an extra 15 minutes to listen to somebody was hard. We thought going out of our way to care for someone's needs was was difficult. Continuing in verse 8, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. It was humiliating for him to go to the cross. It was out of obedience to the Father that he went to the cross. Why do we adopt this mindset of serving others out of obedience to the Father? We don't even do it for our own joy, first and foremost. We do it because God's calling us to. If you play this game, well, this person in my life, they don't deserve for me to serve them. This spouse that I'm married to, they don't ever care for my needs, so I'm not going to do it. Or they don't appreciate me, fill in the blank. My workplace, they don't notice, you'll never gain any traction. This has nothing to do with people. It has everything to do with the Father. I'm going to start being obedient to this mindset because Christ was obedient. He made a willful choice to go to the cross. So you have God becomes man, the God-man. The man takes no reputation, lives a life of rejection and obscurity. Then the man goes to the cross where he's spit upon, his beard's ripped out, he's whipped, he's nailed to the cross. Here's the words of the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsook Jesus as part of the penalty for our sins. The great humiliation of Christ. Jesus set his focus upon the cross. That's how determined he was to serve God and care for other people's needs. In Luke chapter 9, it goes down something like this. Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. The disciples don't get it. It doesn't register. So the disciples start arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Can you imagine? You've just communicated, I'm going to die upon the cross. And I'm like, well, who do you think's the best disciple? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it Judas? I mean, we want somebody to get the merit badge award as the best disciple. So Jesus picks up a child in the midst of all of this. And he says, whoever receives this child receives me. And whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Now, to understand this, we have to realize in their culture, there was no value given to caring for children. You were taking the least position in society to care for the kids. That says a lot about a society. So the disciples didn't see it within their wheelhouse to care for the children. And Jesus is saying, if you take the least job that nobody wants to do, then you're going to be the greatest. That also doesn't register. We find then John being upset that somebody is casting out demons. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. If they're not against us, then, then they're for us. Then they go to a Samaritan village. They don't want Christ there. James and John said, you know what? I think, Jesus, this would be a great time to call down some fire from heaven and roast these guys. Just like Elijah did. And that's where they get their name, Sons of Thunder. And it's in the midst of all of this with the disciples 
that Jesus said, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Isn't that incredible? Disciples are like, who's the greatest? Just fry their faces off. They don't appreciate you. And Jesus is like, these guys don't get it. I've got a mission to do. And he set his face to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be crucified. Can we be encouraged tonight by the word and by the Holy Spirit that we would set our face with determination to our Jerusalem, to what God has called us to, to serve others? My life is in Jesus. Jesus laid down his life. He's calling me to lay down my life for others. This is not something I can just passionately pursue. I can't look at this and go, well, this is just an option. This is a biblical mandate from God. He's saying, Eric, I don't want you to be about yourself. It's the worst thing for you. It defames my glory. It's time for you to grow up and care about other people's needs. Put other people's needs before your own. Lay your, lay your life down. We go on in verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. This is our third key word. It's exaltation. First was what? Declaration. Then exhortation. Have the mind of Christ. And then there's this exaltation that comes. Because Jesus humbled himself, he's exalted above every name. And goes on to say that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those that are in heaven and those are on earth and those that are under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there was great humiliation, but there was even a far greater exaltation that there's no name in heaven, on earth, that's exalted like the name of Christ. When we speak of the name of Christ, it's who he is. It's his person. It represents everything that he is. When you think of someone's name, let's just say their name is Bob, but they're very dear to you and you know their character. You're not just referring to, to Bob as some ethereal thing. It's, it's a dear man in your life. And the name of Jesus, it encompasses, it embodies everything that Jesus is. It's far above every name. Power in the name of Jesus. It's only in the person and the character of Jesus Christ that people are saved. In no other name are people saved. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There's three categories here. It says those who are on the earth, those who are in heaven, and those who are under the earth. They're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's the master of their life to the glory of the Father. Is this teaching that everybody is saved? That there's universal salvation? No, when we look at the whole message of God, the whole counsel of God, it's very important that you choose to confess Jesus Christ as Lord in this life. That's what determines that you go to heaven. But people that reject Christ in this life, in eternity, will have a moment when they see Christ and they're going to go, wow, I got it all wrong. All I thought that you were was a cuss word. All I thought that you were, Jesus, was a good man. I reduced you down to be a prophet, but I now realize that you are God, that you are the Lord, that you are Jesus Christ, the Lord. So I want you to think about for a moment, every mouth that's ever been created, that's ever been in existence in the past, or ever will be existence in the future, every tongue will come to this point in this conclusion 
that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the degree that his name is exalted. But it's really important that you come to that conclusion in this life. Like I mentioned, because it determines whether you go to heaven or hell. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior, tonight's the night. Embrace what he's done. The crucifixion on the cross and declare him as Lord. You're my master. I believe in you and I trust in you for salvation. We're going to cover a few more verses tonight because after the exaltation is the application, God actually gives us the application of the mindset of joy, of the mind of Christ. How is this lived out on a daily basis where the rubber meets the road? Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The word therefore means that it's connected to the previous paragraph. Because of the truths that we just read, this is the action that we're supposed to take. A lot of times when you hear sermons on this section of scripture, it stops at verse 11. But when you read it in its context, it carries into this next paragraph. If you're moved by the way that Christ lived his life, what he's done for us on the cross, then we're going to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. What this doesn't say is work for your salvation. Some people read this and go, well, is this a works-based salvation? I thought we were just reading about the cross. No, it's work out what God has already worked in. When you go to the YMCA or you go to 24-hour fitness, you're working out what God's already worked in. He's given us our bodies. He's giving us muscles, and so now we're working out. We're exercising those muscles that he has given to us. If you go for a walk, you're exercising what God has, has put in. So God has provided salvation complete in Jesus Christ, and now we're applying it. We're working it out, and it's our own. It's our own, isn't it? What does this mean? Nobody else can do it for you. Nobody else can read the Bible for you, pray for you, choose to walk in obedience, choose to take steps of faith, choose to start serving others over ourselves. This is something that you have to do for yourself. You have to choose it and say, I'm going to do this because Christ has impacted me. I'm going to allow the word of God to move me and begin to care for other people's needs. And then the attitude in which we're to do it is in fear and trembling. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. When we look at the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, we go, wow, I'm loved. And it's a fear that's inspired by love, isn't it? Father's Day is this Sunday. Confession time, I didn't realize that till today. But I was in my car listening to the, to the radio, and they started talking about Father's Day. I'm like, oh, that, that's like this Sunday. And when I think about my relationship with my dad, there's some fear and trembling there because he could bring correction in my life growing up. But as I got older, even in my teenage years, it was a fear and trembling that was inspired by love. I knew that my dad loved me. I know that my dad cares for me. And so out of that, I don't want to hurt his heart. And it brings a fear and a trembling. If you are married and you love and you care about your spouse, there's probably a level of fear and trembling there, not because you're afraid that your spouse is going to destroy you, but you don't want to hurt their heart. You don't want to look into their eyes 
and ever have something happen where you've been unfaithful to them. You don't, you don't want to look into your wife's eyes and have to confess to your wife, I've been unfaithful with, a, with another woman. That brings fear and trembling, doesn't it? So I don't want to break my wife's heart. And it's that same way with God, is realizing that we're accountable to him, that he can bring the heavy when he needs to, but we're moved by his love. I love verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. If you only study verse 12 without verse 13, you're going to totally miss it. We're not working out apart from God. We're simply working out what he's already worked in. For it's God who works in you both to will and do his good pleasure. He gave you the desire to read his word. Now you just got to act on it. He gave you the desire to share your faith. Now you just got to act on it. He gave you the desire to serve other people. So, so now you just act on it. I bet for some of us tonight, there's been things that are stirring in our hearts that we want to do, ways that we feel called to serve God, but we're wondering, is it God? The Bible answers that question. Yes, it's God. <laughs> He's put that desire in your heart. So now go for it and, and work it out. In verse 14, this is an ouch verse. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do you think all means all in the Greek? It does. Wouldn't it be easier if it said do some things without complaining and disputing? The word complaining, it means grumbling. Disputing is fighting. The old King James for complaining says murmur. Murmur, 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 right? It's just kind of going through life with that low, dull hum of discontentment. Complaining will bite us like a serpent. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel really wrestled with grumbling and complaining when they came out of Egypt into the wilderness. Complaining that God wasn't giving them water, so he gives them water out of the rock. Complaining that God isn't giving them meat, so God gives them quail from heaven. This continues where they're murmuring and grumbling and complaining so much that God sends serpents to start to bite them. I think it's symbolic of what grumbling and complaining does to our soul. Moses cries out to God. God says, lift up a bronze serpent. Everybody that looked towards the bronze serpent was healed. If you were too stubborn to look towards the bronze serpent, you would die. In Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, this is an example for you. What happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness is an example to don't go down that same place of grumbling and complaining. However... We give ourselves the out on grumbling and complaining, don't we? We give ourselves the hall pass. God's calling me to a standard in sexual integrity. God's calling me to a standard in self-control. But God really understands if I grumble and complain. No, a loving father, in his word, right here, this is his command, is saying, look, you got to change your mindset. You're sinning if you go through your life grumbling and complaining. And that's why it's the ouch verse, amen? In verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, above reproach, and not causing destruction, someone that people can trust. You're, you're harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How do we shine in these dark days? By not grumbling and complaining. Just try it. Next time you're in line at, at Costco, you're going to hear a lot of murmur, 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 murmur 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 
man, and I love to join into the chorus of murmur, murmur in Costco. And you can lose your life in Costco. I'm convinced of it. You know, it's dangerous, right? So if we want to stand out that we're saved, that we're the children of God, is that we have hope, is don't murmur in line at Costco, but give glory to God. Try it out. Wow, I just feel so blessed that we're able to buy food. And there's even some chips and salsa in the cart. Praise the Lord, you know? Man, isn't God good, isn't it? I mean, what if you turned to someone in Costco and said, have you ever been to a third world country? Isn't this crazy that we can just come in here and shop like that? And they even give away free samples. I just found out they'll let you go back for second or thirds. I asked a guy where his job is to hand out the samples. Like, what do you do with those people that just keep coming back? And he's like, we just keep handing it out. That's what we're, we're told to do. And you could floor people with that, right? What if in your workplace, everybody's complaining about the boss You don't like the boss either, but you choose to do all things without grumbling and complaining. What opportunities would that provide to tell people of the hope of of Jesus Christ? It's an incredible way to be able to, to shine. In verse 16, it says, Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So the application, Paul says three things. He says, work out what God's worked in, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And then he tells the church of Philippi, hold fast to the word of life. He's saying, get into God's word, anchor yourself deep into it. It's your lifeline, hold fast to it. Because Paul's saying, I've put a lot of work into you guys and I don't want to run in vain. I want to see you guys finish strong. We finish our text tonight. It says, yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering On the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's going back to the example of a drink offering in the Old Testament, saying my life is being poured out as a drink offering for your faith, for the church of Philippi, and you can rejoice in this. And Paul's saying, allow your life to be a drink offering. Allow your life to be poured out for others. The mindset of joy. What's your mindset? What's your mindset been today? What's my mindset? Do we have the mindset of joy? Are we taking on the mind of Christ? I'm about my father's business. I'm going to choose to serve others. I'm going to choose to put other people's needs before my own and consider them better than myself. So as we come to the communion table tonight, let's encounter Christ. Let's reflect in a great way of his sacrifice upon the cross to the degree that he's humbled himself Because this is what I'm convinced of. If we experience Christ, and we're in awe of all that he's done for us, the encouragement that he provides, the comfort that he gives, then that's going to move us. The Spirit of God's going to move us to then go and to care for other people's needs. But this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you tonight, before you go to bed, is to choose a way that you're going to start serving somebody that's in your immediate circle in a different way, in a greater way. Look in your home. If you're single and you live by yourself, think of it in your neighborhood, your apartment complex, but someone where you live where you say, I'm going to care for their needs in a greater and different way. Think about your workplace. How am I going to care for the people that I work for in a greater and more significant way? This church 
Wednesday night is the backbone of our church. You're here on this Wednesday night study through the Bible and say, you know, how can I just care a little bit differently for those that I see around me and begin to invest in their needs? And guess what? I think we're going to come back next week and we're going to have a little bit more joy in the Lord. Amen? So let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how challenging it is and how convicting it is. We do pray that you'd forgive us for grumbling and complaining. Help us to think in the way that Christ thought, to be about the Father's business, to be willing to care for other people's needs. We know it's not glamorous. We know it's difficult. But therein lies the Christian life, and therein lies the joy of the Lord. So God, as we take communion, would you meet us in the communion table tonight? In Jesus' name, amen.